Welcome to The Twelfth Story, a book discussion podcast produced by Cincinnati's Mercantile Library, where readers gather to engage, connect, debate, and discuss. The Mercantile Library is 181 years old and is the literary center of Cincinnati. Throughout the year, the Mercantile Library hosts authors and speakers, book discussion groups, and other civic events. We are a working library with a growing collection of more than 80,000 books available to members. We're located at 414 Walnut Street in downtown Cincinnati and online at mercantillibrary.com. And we always welcome new members and guests. Joining us today in the lecture hall on the 12th story of the Mercantile Building are Hilary Copsey, an avid reader who works in marketing. Yes, hello. Brian Muthing, another avid reader who's an attorney. Hello, thanks for having me. Yep. And I'm Brendan Cole. I'm on the board of the Mercantile Library. Um, as always, Chris Messick is our host and producer today, so thank you for being here. Um, today, we're going to discuss Hillbilly Elegy by J.D. Vance. Um, it's a terrific book that has generated an incredible amount of discussion um, in, in, the, in the country um, and in, in um, reader circles. And so we're going to talk about that today. And um, a warning, we usually discuss spoilers. So there's, if you haven't read the book and you don't want to know what happens in the book, um, then push pause and come back to us when you've finished reading it. Um, Hillbilly Elegy is by um, J.D. Vance, who is an attorney um, who uh, now lives in Northern California and works in Silicon Valley, but grew up in um, Middletown, Ohio. And so the book has a definite local connection. This is a memoir. The subtitle is it's a memoir of uh, a family and culture in crisis. And the the book is 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 Mr. Vance's memoir of his life growing up in um, working class, poor Middletown. Um, and as he describes it, a family of hillbillies. Um, Scots-Irish who um, uh, lived in um, the hollers of Kentucky, as he, de he describes it, and his grandparents who moved to Middletown to work for Armco Steel, which is now AK Steel, and, um, and lived their lives in Middletown, but still retain a very close connection to um, family, family who, um, is, who are from kind of the for lack of a better term, the hills of Kentucky. And um, so he ha has had an interesting life kind of inhabiting two different worlds, g growing up um, uh, w with this family in Middletown and then now achieving what is undoubtedly great success. And so at the ripe old age of early 30s, he's written a memoir about his life, and it is absolutely captivating. Um, and so... Um, Later this month, uh, in November, Hillary's hosting discussion at the Mercantile Library about this book, and we're going to give a little preview today, so if you are listening to the podcast and you want to come to the discussion group, it's on November the... The second, Second, I at lunchtime. Yes. So um, we'll come back to that later on. But just to kind of start the conversation off, um, what stood out for me is that, this, that the majority of this book takes place... 15 minutes north of, of downtown Cincinnati, which is where we are all sitting right now, and um, is a world that m many of us probably don't see very often. Um, but it also felt a little familiar. So what did this being in Cincinnati mean to you when you were reading it? Well, honestly, I'm not from Cincinnati, and so I didn't pick it up knowing that. Oh. Um, it was really the hillbilly part of that that struck me. Um, but it felt, it was very familiar to me. I believe it's very much of rural Ohio and the Kentucky crossover that happens often, those people who move here for um, 
the factory work. They moved here decades ago for the factory work and stayed here, but still maintain that connection. Um, I live in Norwood now here in Cincinnati, and certainly I think many of my neighbors have similar stories, right? Coming up from Kentucky, having worked at GM or the mm -hmm. other factories that were there at one point, and you know, their life is very different than what it was when those family members first came up from Kentucky. And I think that it's something that you're not seeing very often in media, that story of working class America. And that's really what drew me in. Yeah, I think the, the book is accessible to, to anybody who obviously is not from Cincinnati, but I think being from here adds, you know, a very interesting element to it. I mean, in fact, you know, with JD or the, Mr. Vance's, you know, two homes of sorts being, you know, in the south of here, you know, in Kentucky and then being to the north of here. I mean, Cincinnati really is kind of literally and figuratively at the crossroads. And then interestingly, as, as you know, he goes on and um, gets into his more recent life, you know, he lived here for, you know, I think a year, year and a half and, yeah. and described Cincinnati as a city that he loved. And, you know, I think for me in particular, being a lawyer and knowing that, you know, where he began his legal career here and was, you know, knowing, you know, the reputations of the judges that he and his wife were, were clerking for, I think it really did add a special element and, and added to my appreciation of the book. That's interesting. So you actually knew those folks as almost characters in your own life, right? Yeah, I think so. And I mean, the, um, you know, the, again, it, it's, um, Again, I think it's easy for anybody to appreciate, but, you know, I was able to, you know, being a lawyer and being from here, you know, the judge that, you know, his wife worked for is considered to be, you know, just kind of an elite, you know, an elite jurist and, you know, the and same of the the judge that he worked for. So I do think it adds to, you know, the flavor of the, the book. Story. Yeah, it makes it it made it more. Um, I mean, if you read a book about New York, sometimes you're. We talk about books a lot about New York on this this podcast, but it does. It's a faraway place, and this yeah. is this is our backyard. This is our this is our neighborhood, and there are, like you said, you live in Norwood, and you might have a neighbor who has experienced a very similar life growing up. And so, a bit about that life growing up is that he was um, growing up in Middletown, um, no real father figure in, in for him. Um, spent most of his time at his grandparents place, Mamma and Papa, as he, he just calls them in the book. Um, his mom was involved in, um, you know, some criminal activity and was addicted to drugs and was, was not the stable mom that he, you know, that many of us are fortunate to have had. Um, so he lived this life kind of on the edge, and that's kind of the crux of the story, right? Yeah, I think it's really about... It you know, he describes it in the book and also in interviews that, about the book. He describes it really as this culture, this breakdown of culture. You've got these, he calls them hillbillies, but this, this working class started out as a rural culture. It is very, um, you know, bootstrap, we're going to do our own thing, we're independent, we're going to take care of our own, very connected. And then they came up to work in the factories, and some of that, um, connectedness got broken and sometimes that was not a problem in his particular family and I think in many families when they lost that um, network of support right community support um, you ended up with things like broken families and you don't have a church group to help you out and and so you know he struggled with that and I think many of us can identify no, Hillary, I think that's exactly right. And, you know, the, 
in the book, he tells the story of his, you know, of his grandparents who had, you know, left, you know, rural Kentucky kind of in search of, you know, in search of jobs. And they were certainly not the only ones that did that. In fact, you know, part of the book talks about how there was this, you know, mass migration of sorts out of Kentucky and out of other, you know, rural areas and into, you know, Cincinnati and Middletown. And, you know, he, he, says the you know that they referred to Middletown as Middle Tucky because yeah. of the which people still do by the way right no I've heard that too and you know just because of the overwhelming presence of that of people from that area but it's also just a cultural thing you know they yeah. associated you know that that they had left Kentucky but they had essentially brought the you know the culture of sorts with them but to Hillary's point you know they they didn't bring their family, they didn't bring their network, they didn't bring their, you know, their churches necessarily. And so in some senses they, they picked up and they left, but they, you know, when they arrived, they had left a little bit of that network back in Kentucky. And as anyone who's left home can attest to, I mean, even if you're leaving home for a better life, it's hard to rebuild those networks sometimes, especially if you're, as many of them did, going back home all the time, right? So you've, you, you do end up splitting yourself um, between the place you left and the place where you are, and neither place is completely supporting you as as it could or should. Um, and I think the other thing that happened is they came up here, you mentioned they came up here for jobs, right? But then the American economy changed. So maybe that first generation came up here for jobs, they were able to work factory jobs and have a comfortable, very middle-class sort of life, Yeah, right? I was under the impression that the that Mamma and Papa were living on a pension. No. And not living on... But the next generation was the generation where the jobs in the factory weren't there. And so the, the grandparents were actually living, I, I don't want to say comfortably, but they had a, they had, it doesn't sound like they were, um, uh, it, it didn't strike me that they were living completely on government benefits. It sounded to me like he had had a career. The, 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 it, it was a, um, even, they weren't like, They'd always they weren't the stereotypical middle-class family. Mm-hmm. Far from it. I mean, Mamma was violent, and there were there's stories in her in there about her trying to you know kill her husband at one point. F- stories, by the way, that are incredibly funny, mm-hmm. um, in a s- sort of bittersweet sort of way, I guess. Um, but anyway, so they so um, but the next generation, their kids didn't have the same economy that they were operating into. There was far, far um, less stability when it came to jobs. And you you see that in his mom and aunt who had um, difficult times finding work and and then ended up, you know, the mother turning turning to drugs and pills and those sorts of things. And the same thing, by the way, happens in Kentucky when the, with the pill mills and that just becomes the easiest way out. Right, I mean, I, I think, you know, Clearly, you know, he, his family, I think, was living in some senses, uh, you know, a, a, not a comfortable existence, but one that was, you know, I think the, the jobs that Papa had 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 provided them, you know, a decently comfortable life. You know, at one point, you know, later in the story, you realize that, you know, Papa and, and Mama had separated. Right. But had they each had their own home, right? But they continued to, you know, essentially be watch a, TV together, right? Be a part of their, you know, day to day existence with one another, but then go to their separate homes, um, you know. And the the changing economy point is interesting because you know even JD's mom, even the author's mom, 
you know, had been able to, you know, had clearly gotten a nursing degree and was working as a nurse. And in some senses, even she was able to manage this kind of changing economy to a point, but it was then, you know, the personal challenges that you referred to, Brendan, that, you know, began to kind of undo all that. And I think that's, you know, he, the subtitle here, the culture in crisis, too. I think, and I, I've seen critiques of this, too, that, that people have said, well, he overgeneralizes. His family might have had these problems. Not every hillbilly has these problems, yeah. you know. And, and you can make those critiques, but I mean, as someone who comes from this kind of a background, I mean, there is some legitimate... I, I recognize some of the behavior patterns and... and Def absolutely. And, you know, we... We joke in my family, we're loud, right? You know, <laughs> we are loud people, and you come around us and you think we're fighting, and we're not. We're just talking. <laughs> S- same way. <laughs> I, I right? grew up in Columbus with a, uh, you know, half of my family was Irish, middle class, first generation baby boom, you know, w- was, was not like, um, you know, part of the elite society in Columbus or anything right. far from it. And so I, I didn't know anyone quite like this, but I recognized th- threads, threads of, right. threads of mm-hmm. this in, in many of the characters. And I, I think one of the things People, is... People, shouldn't you, say characters. Yeah, you've got the... So Papa had these jobs that made them pretty comfortable or whatever, and they were all right. Economy changed, but with it, the culture changed too. And there's more divorce. It's That's more acceptable. And, you know, there's there's not always the family stability. You don't have... You might be going to, he mentions this in the book actually, like there's a spirituality and a religion, but it's like watching the mega churches on TV. It's not going to a mm-hmm. church, right? So it says, and meanwhile, the planning has changed too, right? So it's not a main street of shops anymore where people are seeing each other constantly and knowing mm-hmm. each other. Now you've got Walmart and yep. a giant parking lot, and no one's talking to each other. I think all of those are pieces that cause the breakdown that he's calling out. And that's what I think is interesting about this book is I don't see one single person discussing all of those components, right? I don't know. Well, not discussing it in a healthy it, way. Like right. he, this, right. I mean, this is actually start, and I think the, the brilliance of him is that he started this healthy conversation that you're referring to. There's somebody else in our politics right now who is talking to the largely same group of people and but doing it in a decidedly unhealthy sort of way. That conversation is happening, I, I think, because you know this this group we're talking about, this working class you know portion of society, I don't think they feel like anyone is talking with them. I think that there's a lot of, uh, especially from the politics arena, like I think they think people are talking at them or condescending to them, but not really talking with them. Right. I mean, it, it was probably impossible that we were going to have this conversation and, and have not turned to Trump at some point. So, you know, I think, yeah, right. So it's probably makes sense to just do it now. And, you know, I think that clearly the, you know, the message that, that, uh, that Donald Trump is, is offering during his campaign is one that is resonating with the, the people, with the culture that, you know, that Mr. Vance speaks to. You know, what was interesting to me, and, and Brendan, you know this from a little op-ed that I, you know, put together, is, you know, I, I find Trump's campaign message of this America in decline to be very frustrating because you look at objective measures and you say, you know, hey, look, you know, crime is down and, you know, the economy has been growing and unemployment's been going mm-hmm. down. And, and you, you know, you can look at these objective measures and say, 
that message should not be resonating. And yet it is. And even when I you know, try to make the case of America not in decline, I still can say I'm sympathetic to those that say otherwise. Because you know, the people in this book say, well, that isn't that success that that's not affecting my life. You know, you can tell me that crime is down, but not in my family, not in my, not neighborhood. In my neighborhood, not my neighborhood, not to my family with the pills or whatever. Right? Exactly. And Heroin. you can say that, you know, the economy is growing or that, you know, that the job market has improved. Well, not for me, not for my family. And or you can say, you know, the stock market has doubled, you know, this, well, I'm not an investor. You know, I can understand even as I try to make the case, as Brendan, you know, that I've tried to do that there's not this American decline, that I can still understand why, you know, somebody who comes up and says, you know, that America was great, it's letting you down, what can we do to make it better? You know, that, you know, I think Trump, you know, kind of misses that last part because I'm not sure there's policies that really are, you know, back up the rhetoric, but I, I do think that I, I, I can understand why the message is, you know, it has some resonance. Yeah, because the na it's the neighborhood has declined, the culture has declined, the, the, the you know, this um, white working class society is not the same as it was once was. And that's just, the, that's a fact. I kept thinking about another book, Brian, that you and I have talked about before, um, Coming Apart by Charles Murray, um, which was an right. excellent look at yeah. um, two towns and he just kind of looked at how society had changed. Um, Bowling Alone is another yes. book in the kind of in the canon that would would you know fit into this narrative Absolutely. about how cultures changed and it's to your point Hillary Nickel about and how also. nickel and dime sure um, but about how some of the breakdowns of societal connection points you talk about churches you talk about places where people would get together whether it's in you know a Kiwanis Club or a, a meeting, those sorts of things. Those were where people built relationships. And one of the things that always strikes me when thinking about stuff like this is, um, so I was thinking about J.D. Vance growing up and how lucky he was to get where he was and how um, so much for a lot of young people who are in similar situation, it, it depends on whether or not they have someone that they can see who has made it or someone who they can see who has a, who has um is living a different kind of life or has upward mobility or is moving from you know working class to middle class and if you're not around that and your entire life is sheltered from that which in more cases it is now because we live in segregated places and segregated towns and communities you never come out of middletown if you live in in poor middletown if you don't have access to that, you don't see the path of how it's done. And that's why this story is so amazing because he really, in most cases, didn't have access to that. It's, you know, there was not really strong mentors until he was older. It was this one moment in the book where he decides, actually, to um, instead of going straight to college, to join the military. Yeah. And I think, that, uh, without knowing, because he doesn't spend a ton of time talking about the military, but that right. obviously instilled a level of discipline in a here's how you can go from where you are to where you want to be. He, he's actually talked about that a lot in interviews. Uh, as being a turning book, point as for him? Th that the Marines, being in the Marines, was really like a defining factor in his life because it taught him self-discipline and... How not to be angry. And right. how, to f how to fail and keep coming back, right? right? That resilience, um, which is difficult. I mean, I think that, to your point... It's not even, 
it's not even not knowing how to get there. It's not even knowing that that's an option. Yeah. Do you know so what I mean? he, like, so he lives in this life. He doesn't have, he doesn't know that's an option unless he, unless he makes the decision to go to the military. How different does that, does his life end up looking? It's a similar story, by the way, talk, talking it through as it occurs to me as if you've read the other Westmore, which is, a, a, I know yeah. another book that Brian and I've talked about in a book club that we're in and, He's an incredible speaker, and he also had an experience where he joined the military, right. and it gave him mentors and people who would think, help him think about life in a, in a different context. You know, to, to both of your points, what I thought was so interesting about his path to the military is there's even a, a, a few lines in there where he says, I, I, I don't want to stay here, but he was intimidated by, <clears throat> excuse me, by the application process, by the financial aid process, for going to college. He knew he wanted to go to college, but when the forms came in the mail, he said, I, I just don't know how to navigate this process. And so to both of your points, when you grow up in you know, families that you know, are used to going to college, would not be intimidated by that at all, would just get those forms in the mail and say, I know exactly what to do with this, or I know someone who does, yeah. or we have the right questions to ask, or there's people at our schools that handle this all the time. Surely there were resources available to him, but he felt, or maybe there weren't, I don't know, but he, he felt as if he couldn't make it to college yet, didn't want to stay there, and that's what, you know, took him to the military. And I just, I found that that sort of, like, I can't even get through this college process so interesting. Yeah, I agree. And then it manifests itself in later on um, in, in a kind of a funny scene when he's applying to go to, to law schools. He, I mean, he's at Yale at this point, but he's going yeah. out to law schools and he's having, you talked about this completely foreign experience at a fancy restaurant. Right, yeah, there's a great scene towards the end where he's interviewing for his first year summer associate job um, <laughs> at the end of his first year of law school. And you know he's interviewing at a fancy restaurant, and he has never heard that there's multiple kinds of white wine. Right. And he gets sparkling water, and he's never tasted it before, and he spits it out. And right. it's this embarrassing scene, to him at least, because he's never tasted sparkling water, and he doesn't know what to do with all the silverware that's before him. And you know it's this you know things that if you grow up in circumstances where none of that is unusual, it's just such a not big deal you don't even think of it but for him it, it was a, absolutely Go it's ahead, a Hillary. huge well it's a huge deal i mean i'm a first generation college student and a lot of this book resonated with me um and so so my story about this so i grew up in a trailer in rural america we lived on a trailer on my grandparents property and when i was 14 we swapped houses so my parents now live in my grandparents house mm. anyway all that my point here is everyone lived like that. So I was a sophomore in college, and I went to a friend's house in suburban Columbus, and it was like something out of a John Hughes movie. And I was like in awe, because I, honest to God, watched those movies growing up as a teenager mm -hmm. and did not think that people actually lived like that. And I remember being in the basement, and I said, you know, is there a restroom? She's like, oh, yeah, there's a basement one down here. We haven't really finished it yet, but you can use it. And I was like, oh, thank God, a basement, you know, <laughs> right. under construction restroom. I understand this. And I walked in, and I think this bathroom, I honestly don't know what was under construction about it to yeah. this day. It was bigger than my bedroom growing up. And 
I don't, I, I went home that night and called my mom and was like, why did you not tell us we were poor? <laughs> like, how is that not, but, but my point here is not so much that my family was poor, but that my entire community, like not everyone lived in trailers, but I lived in an entire school district where that was not out of the norm, right? Like that was, that was not an unheard of thing. Most, a lot of kids did. So it's, people stay there. They don't, there are people who leave and it's not like we don't see other options, but it's, it's not the norm. Right. Yeah. And it's not, it's not um, always easy to know what it is that you don't know. And there's just clearly this, and, and, and I thought about this a lot because I'm involved in the, the hiring of new lawyers at, at my firm. And, you know, so when I think about this scene where he comes in just so, un, so unprepared, you know, so unfamiliar, maybe unfamiliar with what the process is going to be, you know, certainly we've probably seen candidates like that, right, who, you know, who come in yeah. and they're, they're this is their first interview, you know, they probably have not come from, maybe they haven't come from families where this is familiar or they don't have, you know, resources or role models who are going to tell them here's what the experience is like. And there's probably candidates that we've said, you know, no to who probably, you know, who come in and don't do well in the interview. But if you had been able to get past that, you know, who knows? On the flip side, clearly there's people who, you know, who grow up in families, you know, with professional parents or have gone to elite schools and they come in and objectively do better in interviews and you probably side with them as the candidates and that that has a way of perpetuating itself, right? Because then you're putting into, you know, law firm positions, people who have come from privileged backgrounds and deselecting people who, you know, may have not. And that, I struggle with that because on one hand, I mean, part of our job is, you know, the ability to go into circumstances and interact with people right. and sell your, sell your services. And so you, you want to be able to emphasize those skills. On the other hand, you know, who are you, you know, leaving aside that might be a great fit for your for your organization. Yeah, that's actually one of the things that I like about Vance in this book is I feel like he does a good job of not laying blame anywhere, either on the side of the people who didn't know, right, or right. on the side of the lawyers who are making those judgments because right. they each have are coming from a different place. Uh, I think, I mean, he doesn't have a lot of concrete, like, policies examples, but he, he does offer some suggestions near the end of things like, um, you know, support uh, at the high school and college level, you know, what what counselors and what colleges can do to like identify students that might need a little more help right. with the networking and those sort of softer skills, yeah. right? One of the other things he talks about is the, is the recommendation about keeping families together. I right. mean, his yes. grandmother and Mamma and Papa to him are the most important people, obviously his, his core in, in the story. And there's a there's a, a heart a heart wrenching scene, very difficult to read scene, where he gets in an argument with his mother in the car, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. then he ends up the car gets pulled over. I forget the the specific, yeah. but then he runs out of the car right. and runs away from her. I mean, the mother essentially says, "I'm going to drive us into a ditch. I'm yeah, going to kill us." Kill and yeah. he you know straps himself in, and then figures out a way to run away, and she chases him. And then I think what you were probably going to say, Brennan, is the grandmother comes and gets him and the sister comes and gets him and but know. he's but the mother's almost arrested right. or is arrested is. and 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 goes to court and then he's in this uh, 
untenable situation of having to. I mean, the mother did a, a terrible thing, and she right. she broke broke the law and child endangerment, and, and on and on and on. And he's in this terrible position about having to to testify against his mother. And and it wasn't so much that he was scared of testifying against his mother. It was he wasn't certain he would be able to go live with his grandparents, which is what he felt like would be the more stable situation and that he would have wound up in foster care. And right. so he said that there's this perverse um, incentive for kids who are in crisis in their home lives right. who should stay with family and could stay with family to not tell the truth or not be honest with what's going on because they're afraid of having to go live with a stranger, which is, I think, what would have happened. Right. So one of the things that he advocates for is how in the court of law can you find ways to keep a, keep that family unit right. somewhat connected. And I will say that, I mean, I, I should say, first, I, I just, I loved this book. I thought it was a fascinating read, and I thought it, it's really caused me to think about a lot of different things. You know, the only... You know, and he would probably say, "Well, look, I didn't write this as a you know policy, you know, as a policy book. You know, I wrote this as a, a, a as a memoir." The only time when I you know read through it and I get a little bit frustrated is you know you read this you know this this great story and and then it, he identifies what I think are you know serious issues, and then I. I want there to be more of a policy discussion yeah. or more of a, you know, here's, and, and now that I've told you this, here's what would have helped me or here's, and Brendan, you're exactly right. I mean, he does, you know, make that recommendation about, you know, the, the idea of, of a family should be broader in a court or who you can go. And he, he, he also talks about, you know, don't lump Section 8 houses all together. Mm -hmm. You know, let's, let's have, you know, a more spread out community so you, you know, have access to, so that you live on a street with somebody. So even if you're poor and you live on a street with someone who's a doctor, you you are around that. Right. Yeah. But but really, and maybe I'm forgetting some of the things. It really does almost stop there on a policy side, that and and a does. lot of it, right. and and part of that might just be his his view, which is a lot of this can't be solved with policy. A lot of this can't be solved with you know you know with government changes. Instead, this is, you know, if we're going to advance, you know, or I, if, the, if the culture is going to advance, if it's going to change for the better, it has to come from within. Mm -hmm. And there's not going to be a, a government, there's no magic wand, there's no policy Absolutely. wand, I think is, is you know, I think reasonable people can differ about, but that, about that, but that's certainly his perspective. No, he's definitely a conservative. I was going to say. I mean, he writes a, for the National Review. Yeah. He, I think... You have to imagine that, but for Donald Trump, he would be endorsing the Republican, whatever the Republican nominee, much. right? Yeah. And and you know, I, I, I respect that too. I guess um, you know his 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 takeaway from all of this from this life isn't to go back and say we have to create a program or we have to do more, you know, government support through f financial. Um, uh, Pro programs and things. Right. Um, he, he, I think he gets to the core of it, which is that there is a level of, and I'll say these words without trying to sound like it's a talking point, but there is this level of, of personal responsibility that the family, clearly, the family unit has to undertake. That if you're going to, you know, raise kids and try and get out of the situ situation that they're in, or not have the the same sorts of strife in a family and drugs and everything, you know, the government can't fix that and. You know, I'm I'm not, not, you know, I tend to be um, 
more of a party, more of the belief that government can can do things and should do things, and I believe in a government that should engage. But he makes a pretty good case that um, there there's a missing piece that that has to be solved by something other than government. So he's a conservative, and I tend to I tend to move a little bit farther away from, further left. But I do think that he gets at something that is important, which is that there broad generalization here, but there is, especially among the working class, this feeling of, and an aspiration of, I'm gonna pull myself up. And we want to, we want, we are people who make things and do things, and that's that's the mindset and the ethos. And I think for, for things to work with that group um, and to feel good for them is they, ha they need to have some agency in it, right? So, so that's one of the things I actually liked about his, his book is that he brings these questions up, and I do think, to your point, that reasonable people can agree, can argue and debate and discuss mm -hmm. these things. Um, but at least he's bringing them up, right? And I'm not sure that there's many other people doing that. And I think one of the things that he, you know, I think one of the points that I took from the book is that, you know, I, I think what he would say is, look, you can have, you know, government programs, and you can you can do a lot of different things, but at the core, you need to have this stable home life. That's right. As yeah. a foundation that you can build on, and in fact, he, you know, goes through the fact that you know he had you know changed addresses over and over, and he and his mother had brought, you know, all these different, different men into men. his life, yeah. and that you know there was just this constant, and it was only until. You know, his grandmother provided him a, a stable home where it was just him and her, where he could, you know, and it was only then because you know, he his grades were slipping, his behavior was slipping, yeah. and, and it was then when he was able to advance academically. And, and, you know, I think what, you know, one of the things he would probably say is, you know, look, it, it, you need stability. You know, as a culture, we have to provide stability for our, our kids or that it's going to be a real struggle for them. I, I think that's absolutely right. Um, I another book I read this year is called um, it's called Evicted, and it's, next it's, to my reading it's list, awesome. Actually. It's in it. There's the stability theme is runs through it, and you read about families who are moving from apartment to apartment, and they have just zero stability, and how that one it happens one time, one eviction, and it sets off this chain reaction of events of and it destabilizes a family, it destabilizes a child, and um, that part of it is very scary because it's, it's a, evicted is by, um, I'm gonna forget the name of the author, uh, maybe we can even add it into the notes, but um, he won a MacArthur Genius Grant last year and he lived in a trailer park in Milwaukee for a period of time and then also lived in kind of a, um, a Section 8 housing in a largely African-American part of Milwaukee and, in, immersed himself in the in both both places, and then um, wrote about what happened and what he saw, and about families getting evicted and what it did, and what it did to the landlords who ran the places. And sure. it's a it's a underground economy and a world that most Americans don't ever see or have a part of. But you can't help but reading that, reading Hillbilly Elegy, and not saying, "How does a kid come out of this and and thrive?" And so so he Vance is the exception. Yeah, but. And that, that point and um, in the book generally makes me think of this, you know, the experience that I've, I've been a tutor at Euler School on the on, on Lower Price Hill for the last 15 years. And, you know, I think the world of the educators there and the programs that they're running and, you know, I've had great experiences with some of the kids, but the, the, ins, the, the unstable lives that they lead 
is just amazing. And there was a child a couple years ago who I had developed this really strong relationship with. And one day she was just gone. And I asked the, you know, the teachers, you know, what had happened. No one knew, you know, she had, she was out of the school and they, you know, they, they tried to go look for her. Her family had been evicted, just no, no trace, right? You know, because probably to the point that you're making, Brendan, you know, the family gets evicted and it sets in this chain of, you know, then you're out of school and then you're in, you know, you're in a new environment that's, you know, it's just, it's very difficult for, for people who don't have that stability. Yeah. Sorry, Hillary, I cut you off. No, I was just kind of, that's a sad story. Um, but I was actually reminded, I don't know if you guys have ever read any Rick Bragg, but his memoirs of his family, Ava's Man and Oliver But the, Oliver but the Shoutin', he would tell you he's from Hillbilly People too. And it really put me in mind of that. And I think it's, it's a, I bring it up because he, he talks about the stability. For him, it was his, his grandparents, right? It also, and his mother. His mother, mm -hmm. his father was not around, but his mother was. Um, but the, the, this idea of like family meaning more than just the, you know, 2.2 kids and a dog and a, you know, white picket fence. And I think that that's something that has been true for ever. You know, you look back in these families, you know, clear depression even earlier their family was not this nuclear wonder. It's not like there was any time where you could pinpoint that this was the perfect point right. in America, right? right? But our policies often assume that to that get the was. stability that you have to have this perfect nuclear family. And I think acknowledging that that disconnect between what we think is perfect and what the reality looks like sometimes. It doesn't have to be your mom or your dad or, you know, it can be your grandma or it could be a teacher or it could be, but you have to have something that is stable and someone who is, is that person for you, right? That's right. I think that's what they get at. Um, before we stop talking about this book, I feel like this has been a pretty serious conversation and to... <laughs> I have to say that one of the things that made this book, first of all, it was, it was, it was just an excellent read, and it, it made us think about a lot of the things that we've talked about over the last thirty-five minutes or so. But the re reading his description of his grandmother, Mama, was it I wanted was to just hang out a, with her. Yeah. I mean, like, what a special person, and mm -hmm. like, you, you, you know, she had plenty of flaws, and there's, I mean, there is a scene where she tries to light somebody on fire. I mean, like, mm -hmm. her husband. Is, yeah, her <laughs> husband. This is a, this is a hard scrabble kind of woman. She has a a, a mouth that is, you know, a, like cusses like a sailor, um, but a special person. And if you, if you don't want to read this book because you don't want to have like the heady conversation about you know future of culture and future of America, read this book because you're going to get introduced to a, a person who, who lived in this area who was this person's grandmother who's just a, a you know one of a kind and, and it is and it, it's a gr it's really entertaining parts of it and it's also darkly funny like I think he does a great job of showing how even in these horrible moments of your life if you can find some humor and gallows like the, humor yes yeah. right. I really she was. It was just. She was such a, a, a um, such a bright spot in the in the book, and totally. it totally made agree. you want to turn the page and, and learn in, more and about her. And in fact, her. he goes through you know kind of the stories of his uh, of his ancestors. You know, some mm -hmm. of which were apparently involved in the Hatfield uh, yeah, McCoy yeah, yeah, dispute, yeah, yeah. That's and the you know the the tales of of Jackson, Kentucky, were all fascinating. And then you're exactly right. I mean the 
you know, she, she was a real enigma, I mean, because she was extremely loving. I mean, in some senses, she rescued, you know, him, his sister, you know, other aspects of mm-hmm. other parts of his family. But at the same time, I mean, it was, you know, a very, yeah, I mean, as we said, she tried to light the, light her husband on fire at one point and <laughs> would, would, uh, would literally, if he asked for a meal, would bake him trash in the oven and serve it to him on a plate. I mean, the, it, it, it was funny, of course, but it's also like, wow, there's a lot going on here for yeah, sure. Yeah. Okay, well, um, this has been a great conversation. Um, J.D. Vance, if you're listening, we remain, the door remains open. We'd love to have you visit the Mercantile Library sometime this year. Um, it's not far from where you were working when you lived in Cincinnati. This right. has been a great conversation. Hillary's discussion group is early November, I think November first Wednesday of, in November. Um, it'll be a t- terrific um, lunchtime conversation here. So if you're a Mercantile member and you hear this between now and then, you want to sign up, you can find it on mercantillibrary.com. Uh, all the information there. Before we go, um, anything else on your nightstand that you're reading that you want to recommend to our listeners? So American Pain by, I think, John Temple is about the pain pill epidemic and specifically the pain pill clinic in Florida that all the people in Kentucky were driving to. So it's a good companion to this. You know, honestly, nothing that's on my nightstand is, was as interesting as this or some of the others that have been mentioned here. So I would start with all those, and then we can, we can, if you get down that list, we can talk at some point. That's great. Um, I'd, I'd recommend picking off the pain dreamland, which is also yes. about the heroin, ep- heroin epidemic, and a large portion of it takes place within our... MSA as well is well worth the read. Sam Quinones is it's a f- phenomenal book. Um, and then if you're interested in a biography and maybe also kind of tangentially related to this story, the new biography of Bobby Kennedy is marvelous. And um, you know, obviously a life cut short at a time when he could have had an impact on this culture and society as well. And who knows what would have happened, but worth going back and reading about Bobby um, this many years later. So. Um, with that, thank you for joining us today on The Twelfth Story. Um, we encourage you to sub- subscribe via your preferred podcast app. We're available on iTunes Store and on SoundCloud. And if you like listening, tell your friends or tweet to us at Mercantile L-I-B. This is Brendan Call. We've been joined today by Hillary Copsey and Brian Muthing. Uh, today's podcast, as always, was directed and engineered by Chris Messick. Uh, The Twelfth Story is a production of the Mercantile Library in downtown Cincinnati, and our theme music was created by Doug McDermott. Don't forget to visit us online at mercantillibrary.com where you can learn about our library and our upcoming events. Have a great week. Mm